You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Boonurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It's the 8th of June. And you are joined by the illustrious hosts, myself, Jacob, Ella and Claudia. Now, what have you been, one been up to this week? Yeah, well, it's good to be back. I was away last week. So last week I was um, working full-time. I'm a sport worker, so I was staying at my uh, regular client's house for the week while his parents are away. And as you said, Claudia, it's a good taste for whether I'm ready or not to be a parent. I think I'm not quite ready yet, but I enjoyed the week. <laughs> it's hard work. Uh, more the no-break thing, I think. I mean... Um, I did have little breaks during the day, but it's always different when, yeah, you're there full time and, um, yeah, on the clock. <laughs> I think I can remember back to when I was having my first child and a friend of mine who'd already had children said to me, it's very constant. And uh, it was a expression that stayed <laughs> with me once I uh, was engaged in full-time parenting. Yes, definitely. And, obviously and it's still going. My daughter's now 21. Yeah, <laughs> the other thing, I had a yeah, 16-year-old and a 20-year-old, so normally, I guess, as a parent, you build up to that, whereas yep. straight into it. Straight <laughs> in the deep end. Um, but no, it was also a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And you get to know the people when you're you know, actually in the sharing the same space. Yeah, in a different definitely. Way. Um, it's, yeah, um, one of the things I like most about support work, I think, is seeing people at different parts of their day and different parts of their life. So obviously if you're going out into the community or doing an activity, it's totally different to um, when you're at home and you do like bedtime or dinner time and everyone starts chatting and you see a different side to people. So it's nice. Mm. Mm. Sounds like you did a great job. Oh, shucks. <laughs> and how's Huge your week uh, been, Jacob? Are you in exam mode at the moment? Yes. Um, it's been definitely a, a challenging week. A lot of hustling to um, <laughs> get a lot of assignments and assessments in, but there is only one to go for this semester, and then I have a little break, which Woo-hoo. is lovely. So, yeah. Um, and my parents came down uh, from Newcastle over the weekend. So Exciting. Yeah. So I, I showed them around Melbourne a little bit, um, took them to – they were really – Excited to go to the Queen Victoria markets. Oh, um, mine so too. There. Parents love the Queen Vic markets. <laughs> I'm such a parent, like, tourist <laughs> attraction, isn't it? I don't think I would go had they not been there. So I was happy to go as well because I don't go too often. Um, and then they helped me assemble a bed frame. So that was really nice as well. And then mm-hmm. they actually came uh, into 3CR and watched me present Queering the Air on Sunday. So, oh, what an experience. Yeah, so we did a bit of everything, um, which was, yeah, really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and Ella's got 
your mum visiting again, so uh, it must yeah, be the, that time of the year for parents to visit their uh, <laughs> children interstate. Um, yeah, and no, I just had my parents here a couple of weeks ago. My mum's back this weekend, but uh, so I have to think up a whole new list of uh, parent activities to do. Oh. But um, she's coming with a friend, so I think they'll keep themselves busy as well. <laughs> well, I can recommend um, some theatre productions if you're interested. I had quite a cultural week. Ooh, I got out three great. times last week, which wow. is... Um, probably a record for me. Uh, So the Rising Festival's on and I went to two things uh, they were presenting, which uh, were on the Thursday night I went to the Malthouse to see the production The Return, which uh, is a First Nations production and it looks at the role of the museum in systemic racism in Australia's history. And, uh, yeah, it was a really amazing production uh, approaching uh, that era of Darwinism and collecting and the way we display and objectify um, human remains in museums. Um, yeah, so it was quite a, a strong uh, production. Ah, and that was looking at, sorry, museums in general or one particular museum? Uh, well, it was a fictitious museum I for see, the, yep. the sake of the production, but uh, during the... 19th century museums uh, were participants, I suppose, in the the um, colonial project yeah. of you know, maintaining and hierarchies and race and so forth. So it's a it's a questionable space how, yeah. how museums and communities engage in terms of uh, representation and you know whether those communities have any agency in the way that they're represented. So the production sort of looks at that from a number of angles and um, it's also got some humour in it, so which lightens up the, the darker themes. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I think um, those things can be really useful, especially because we kind of grow up thinking of museums as these factual, non-biased accounts of... Um, the world around us and then particularly when you reflect back on um, uh, all the times you realise how biased and yeah mm. um, influenced they are by the people who are writing and presenting and I think and, yeah and particularly at this time in um, Britain and um, Scotland there was quite a lot of complicit um, uh, relationships between museums and um, the medical faculties of universities that were mm. teaching students using um, human bodies. And, yeah, so there was kind of like a whole industry of trading bodies around the world so that medical students could learn so-called scientific, um, you know, research mm. on, on human bodies. But unfortunately it meant that those remains left the the people that they belong to, and some of them, yeah, never came home. So I suppose that ties in with the whole repatriation that we're now seeing of um, First Nations yeah. ancestors and so forth, and why that's such an important part of healing for communities to have their people back on country. So yeah, it's a really interesting production that quite thought-provoking and confronting if you haven't sort of thought about those sorts of aspects of our history. Mm. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. 
And then on Sunday, I went to see the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, which I want to go see that. <laughs> Tell us more. Wherever you can get a seat, um, yeah, I think it's not to be missed. Really, it's um, quite an extraordinary show. It's a one-person show. Erin um, Jean Norville, and she is on stage, but she's also projected on stage through all these multimedia. Uh, screens and she plays 26 different characters so she's got many many different voices <laughs> and mannerisms and yeah it's incredible Oscar Wilde um, yeah production so I won't say any more but that oh, was a good definitely a, a great yeah. one mm. yes excellent <laughs> <laughs> we could go on but we probably need to have a song now. Yeah, true. <laughs> Shall we uh, quickly run through what we've got planned for the show this morning? I think, Jacob, you're up first sure. today. Sure, yes. So um, I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. Patricia Reynold, who is the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, and we'll be speaking on COVID-19 medicine monopolies. So that's first up at 10 past 7, or in a few minutes. And then at 7.30, we're going to be speaking with Jason Fowler from the Energy, sorry, from the Environment Centre of the Northern Territory. And that'll be on a recent case that was launched against the Australian government who approved a mine, um, well, an oil drilling project, I should say, um, off the north coast of Australia in the Tiwi Islands. So we'll be speaking a bit on that. Excellent. And then at 7.50, um, I'll be talking with Yorta Yorta, a Wurundjeri educator and artist, Lynn Thorpe, about her experience teaching at the Northland Secondary School in the 1990s. Um, some of our listeners might uh, be aware of the Northland Secondary School story, which um, was one of the, the many schools that Jeff Kennett closed down in his cost-cutting rampage in the 90s. And... It was the only one that survived because two of its students took the government to court. And at the moment, you can go to Melbourne Museum and see an exhibition which tells the story of the community action. And uh, Lynn Thorpe will be telling us more about that. Excellent. And, yeah, I'm going to finish up the show chatting with writer Nadia Wheatley. Um, so Nadia's recently co-authored a book with her longtime friend, Meredith Bergman, um, and the book is kind of part memoir, part biography. Um, each chapter looks at a different activist. Um, so it, the book is called Radical, Remembering the 60s. Um, and they speak to a bunch of really interesting people. So there's the, both authors have written their own chapter, but they've also spoken to people like Gary Foley, Margaret Reynolds. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really interested to hear more about the book, the process behind it. And, yeah, this really interesting time of political change and activism in Australia. Yeah, that um, sounds really interesting. We had the, the movie Brazen, the documentary Brazen Hussies last year, which dealt with uh, the women's movement in the 60s. So, yeah, the activism yeah, yep. was, uh, yeah, it was a really powerful time for that. Yeah, yep, there was a lot happening. I think it was women's liberation, the Vietnam War, gay rights. So, yeah, yeah. a lot and to unpack. All right, well, uh, let's get the morning started off with a song, and we'll be back with you shortly. Uh, this is Sheena Williams and his African Ensemble.
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Sheena Williams and his African Ensemble. Thank you. Now we're going to be speaking on medicine monopolies. The World Trade Organization is set to meet tomorrow to debate a waiver on a controversial trading agreement related to COVID-19 vaccines. The original waiver on the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights was proposed by South Africa and India in 2021 and would enable more equitable production and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. The waiver has been blocked for over a year by the EU, Switzerland and the UK, who face immense lobbying from pharmaceutical companies. And joining us now to unpack this waiver and what it all means is Dr. Patricia Reynolds, who is the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. Pat, good morning. Thanks for coming on. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Now, I know we've had you on breakfast a few times, but for our listeners that may not be familiar with this issue, what are medicine monopolies and what effects are they currently having in the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, the World Trade Organization rules give 20-year monopolies on new inventions, including vaccines, treatments and pharmaceutical and all other COVID-related medicines. Um, and um, this means that during a pandemic, only a handful of the companies which have invented these medicines, with government funding, I might add, not just out of the goodness of their hearts, um, but they control both quantities and qualities, uh, sorry, and, and prices of vaccines. So we have a handful of companies controlling the quantity and the price during the pandemic. And the result of this has been that most vaccines and other related medicines, um, which have, as I said, been developed with government funding, have been sold at high prices to high-income countries. Um, And we now know that in Australia and other countries, double and triple vaccination rates are now around 80 to 90%, whereas in low-income countries, they're still less than 20%. So basically, um, the um, low-income countries uh, are missing out. And, of course, in terms of the new medicines that are being invented to treat the um, pandemic, um, these are even less available in low-income countries. And the the move to third and fourth booster shots has compounded this problem because they've been made available to rich countries but not poor countries. So we have a situation where millions are still dying and new variants develop and spread in areas of low vaccination. So it's bad for everyone and prolongs the pandemic. I see. So obviously a large um, amount of ownership there taken by those pharmaceutical companies and by rich countries but as you said it seems like it's kind of common sense that to end the pandemic you know we have to vaccinate everyone as soon as possible so why are there still some countries that are reluctant to put a strong waiver on vaccine monopolies and who do you think are the main culprits well the the world trade organization works by consensus so it's fairly easy for a small group to block proposal. India and South Africa put up a proposal to temporarily waive um, the monopolies on COVID-related vaccines and other treatments last year. 
uh, and it's been blocked by the UK, Switzerland and the EU, which have very large pharmaceutical companies. The United States has said it's willing to consider a waiver, particularly on vaccines, but it's sort of um, not supported a comprehensive waiver on all medicines. And the problem is that unless we have a waiver, um, it means that we can't have... We can't produce enough vaccines and other treatments to cover the whole world. Um, and, and as I said, we've got these very low rates in low-income countries, particularly in um, places like Africa and um, uh, parts of Latin America and Asia. Um, so uh, it would, if we could have the waiver, it would mean that countries like South Africa and India, which already produce most of the world's generic medicines, um, they're capable of producing these medicines. They just need the information and the knowledge um, to be freed up so they can um, produce at a, on a regional basis uh, and uh, increase global production and make sure that there's an equitable spread of these medicines throughout the world. Mm, so it's not really a matter of production capacity. It's, it's more so just a matter of sharing that information. Uh, but we know uh, in lieu of uh, sharing this information about vaccines. There's been some other initiatives towards vaccine equity led by some of the wealthier countries. Uh, the U.S. has pledged to donate over a billion vaccine resource, uh, a billion vaccine doses, sorry, and they're about halfway through. But there still remains a stark difference between developing and developed countries, as you mentioned before. Why do you think some of these initiatives have been less successful? Well, basically, donation schemes can't produce the quantities um, that are needed to really vaccinate the world. If you think about it, there's 7 billion people in the world, and we're now talking about triple doses of vaccines. So that's the, a total amount of 21 billion vaccines just for triple um, vaccination. Um, and most poor countries haven't even had one or two doses um, for 20% of their population. Um, so uh, the, the donation schemes were met initially designed to address um, the sort of most urgent cases in developing countries, like vaccinating frontline health workers or um, you know, certain um, segments of the population as a matter of urgency. Um, but even those modest targets, like the U.S., has not met its one billion target. There's a global uh, vaccination scheme, COVAX, uh, that has had several targets uh, which it has not met. But even then, they were only um, aiming to reach two billion doses um, by, I think, about the middle of this year, and they haven't met that target. So um, it is a problem of um, total... The total production is being limited by the fact that it's still controlled by a handful of companies and the distribution is limited by the fact that we now have, um, tri you know, double, triple and, and quadruple uh, vaccination programs in rich countries. And so there's just, there's just not enough vaccines to fulfil the vaccination, to, to fulfil the donation programs, but also 
uh, so, so the, vac- the donation programs were never really designed to vaccinate the whole world. So clearly there's some issues there, not only on the uh, production side, but also the distribution side, as you said. Uh, And the General Council of the World Trade Organization is meeting tomorrow uh, on the 9th of June to begin debates on vaccine waivers. Will Australia be at this meeting? Um, And if so, what position do you hope the Australian Labor government will take on the waiver? Um, yes, Australia will be at this meeting and there's another meeting next week which is actually a meeting of all the ministers. It's called the Ministerial Council of the WTO which is supposed to actually make the decision. The meeting this week is having um, negotiations where they hope to um, make some kind of agreement. The um, Labor, uh, when it was in opposition, was critical of the previous uh, Liberal National Government because um, although the previous government said it supported the waiver, um, in fact, in the negotiations, it played what it called an honest broker role, broker, sorry, an honest broker role, uh, which meant that it didn't actually um, support, fully support a comprehensive waiver, but was trying going between um, the mostly developing countries supporting a comprehensive waiver and the EU and UK and so on who opposed it and trying to find a compromise. Um, we, the Labor government, in, sorry, the Labor, when Labor was in opposition, they were critical of this position and said that the government should take a stronger position in actually supporting and actively sponsoring a comprehensive waiver. And so what we're asking the government to do is take that position in this meeting and in the ministerial conference next week. In other words, that Australia could could play a lot, a lot stronger role in supporting demands for a comprehensive waiver. And that would mean that the waiver should cover all medicines, not just vaccines, that it should cover all forms of intellectual property and that it should not have any... Um, limitations um, that have been um, proposed by um, the EU and Switzerland and the UK in the negotiations, which some of which are actually more onerous than the current um, World Trade Organisation rules. Um, what they've been doing is playing a sort of rearguard action of introducing more and more amendments which actually restrict um, the degree to which... Um, uh, the intellectual property will be freed up. And, of course, that is in the interests of the pharmaceutical companies, but it's not in the interest of the vast majority of people in the world. Um, so we hope that the new government will take a stronger position for a very comprehensive waiver in these negotiations. Mm, it sounds like it's certainly needed with, you know, we're, we're two and a half years into the pandemic and there still is such an inequity between developed and developing nations. Now, how can our listeners support this cause and stay up to date on this issue? Um, Well, if they go to our website, aftinet.org.au, from tomorrow we will have um, a link to a website where they can go and send messages to to global leaders um, or to um, our government Um, there's ready-made messages to send uh, and um, this can be done through either a message or there will be a Twitter storm as well so people can tweet um, 
to those leaders and there's other there's images and memes and so on that people can circulate to raise awareness about this. Fantastic. Well, I, I do love a good Twitter storm, so you can definitely count me in on that. Pa- uh, Pat, thanks so much for joining us this morning and for your continued advocacy on this issue. Awesome. So that was Dr. Patricia Reynold, who is the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. Um, you can look them up. That's AFTI, A-F-T-I, the acronym. Um, and she was speaking on the continued debate around a waiver uh, that will provide more equitable access to intellectual property um, rights for vaccines. So a bit of a complex issue there, but I think it's a, yeah, a really important one. Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And before the break, we heard God Hour from Baby Father. Thank you. So turning the dial a bit now to another issue that's happening up on the north coast of Australia, senior lawman and Tiwi traditional owner Dennis Tipakalipa is taking the federal government to court over the approved Barossa offshore gas project led by Santos, and this project threatens the culture, way of life, and food sources of the Tiwi Islanders who reside there. Mr. Tipakalipa was chosen by his community to represent them and says contrary to Santos's legal obligations, there was no consultation there with the traditional owners. Now, joining us now is Jason Fowler, who is an energy campaigner and marine biologist from the Environment Centre of the Northern Territory, and Jason's been working on this project from the beginning. Jason, good morning and welcome to 3CR. Good morning, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Now, give us a bit of background about this case. What is Santos and the government trying to do, and why are they being challenged in court? Yeah, look, it's um, the Barossa gas field. It's about 120 kilometres north of the Tiwi Islands, and ConocoPhillips used to own it, um, but they sold the whole lot to Santos uh, a few years ago, and they got out and they left northern Australia. Um, And Santos have inherited this big kind of white elephant, which they've been trying to develop as fast as they can. Um, and the Barossa gas field is the dirtiest gas field, offshore gas field in Australia. You know, it's um, 18 to 20% carbon dioxide. So you think about that, every every bottle of gas you pull out of the ground, like a fifth of it is pure carbon dioxide. It gets vented straight in the atmosphere. So um, it, it's a massive problem there. So what's, what's happened is that the project is in numerous parts. So they have to lay a massive pipeline for 260 kilometres across the seafloor through, through a couple of marine parks uh, around, the, around the edge of the Tiwi Islands and into Darwin. And then they have to drill uh, production wells out at sea to hook it all up into a big ship to pump this gas into Darwin. So um, originally, way back when ConocoPhillips owned the project, they actually did talk to some of the traditional owners um, nearest to the pipeline. But in this situation, Santos um, had the drilling plan approved, which is at the northern side of the Tiwi Islands, and they didn't even bother going up there and talking to anyone at all. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a very clear lack of consultation to the, to the, for the people who actually live there and will be looking out to sea and, and looking at all these ships go past every day. My God, yeah, you forget how dirty gas is. I mean, it's been marketed as kind of a, a clean transition product, but from what you've described, it sounds really harmful. And I know you're a marine biologist, so you'll be... Right across this, what are some of the ecological risks involved in this offshore gas project? Yeah, huge risks, Jacob. Um, you've got the Oceanic Shoals Marine Park there, which is the biggest marine park in northern Australia, and it's full of reef systems. That's why it's called the Oceanic Shoals. There's dozens of reefs all around this big gas field. Um, and, you know, those reefs that are incredibly productive. They supply Australia, well, those little red tropical standards you see in your supermarket shelves, they all come from this area. It's called the Timor Reef Fishery um, and offshore snapper fishery. It's super important for our seafood supply. To give you an idea of how productive it is, then, then you come to the two islands um, and all those western beaches and northern beaches of the Tiwis, absolutely beautiful, pristine beaches, and they're covered in turtle nests. Literally, it's the last sort of uh, pristine turtle nesting grounds in, in northern Australia, really. Um, and then you want to you know, open up this massive industrial project and have heavy shipping and all the... <laughs> all the impacts that go with it coming along that coast. 
So just to give you some idea of how, how vibrant and alive this area is, even in close to the Tiwis, you've got huge uh, NT reef fish protection zones, which are like a big marine park to protect the reef fish there. So they recognise how important it is. There's a world-famous uh, fishing lodge there called Barra Base. Um, some of the best fishing in the Northern Territory is right there, right where that pipeline is going to go. So, yeah, just to give you an idea of how, how pristine and beautiful this place is. Mm, so quite a, a vibrant ecosystem there that sounds like it's going to be at harm from this, this gas pipeline. And equally as important is that this land belongs to the Manapi clan um, in, in the Tiwi Islands. What are the impacts of the Barossa gas project for them? Yeah, the Manupi people are, are very much um, traditional people. They live out in country. They go hunting every day and fishing every day. Um, they actually have tourism businesses there. They take fishing charters out to the reef systems that I was talking about, um, and they clearly go out and use that sea country all the time. Now, the impacts are, well, you can imagine this, right? So you've got at least 20 different kinds of ships to run this gas field, um, and they're, those ships are going to go to and from the gas field for the next 25 years. So from Darwin out to the Brosser field and back again. So that means what you're doing is you're developing a massive shipping lane up and down the coast of the Tiwi Islands that was never there before. Now, these ships are driving at, you know, 15 to 20 knots, which is quite fast. Um, and it's been really pr- clearly proven that turtles uh, can escape from ships if they're only going at six knots. But if they're going faster than that, the turtles can't get out of road in time and they get chopped up by the propellers. So this is a huge problem in the Great Barrier Reef, for example. So you... You're sort of creating this big uh, turtle mincer all the way along the coast of the Tiwi Islands. So that's just the turtles. Then you've got um, the risks of oil spills. Um, the Santos, the operator, are, you know, they have a disciplined, low-cost operating model. They say that all the time, and that means that they tend to cut corners and, and not um, use world, world's best practice. You know, they, they're not using double-hulled ships, for example. So if they have, if they have a collision, uh, the fuel holds burst open very easily. You've got a massive oil spill, oil spill on your hands. They're not putting uh, oil spill cleanup gear at Port Melville on the Tiwi Islands, right where you might need it. They're saying, oh no, we'll, we'll just have it in Darwin in case you need it. Darwin being, you know, 100 k's away from where the oil spill might be. So um, then you've got well blowouts, which we saw from the Montara, Montara blowout in 2009. You might have heard of that one. That was a shocker. Um, it's, uh, so it's condensate, it's not oil, so it's a little bit lighter than oil. Um, a lot of people think, oh, you condensate, it'll just evaporate, it'll be fine. But what they're not realising is that condensate is more toxic and it's particularly toxic to coral spawn and sponge spawn. So you're talking about wiping out the, the bottom of the food chain there. The, the real productivity would be really damaged by um, any kind of well blowout from condensate. Um, and then you've got the actual drilling process itself, which uses uh, tens of thousands of cubic metres of drilling muds, which are all full of chemicals. You know, they've got all, signs of all kinds of acid regulators and detergents and all sorts of stuff in them. And all of that ends up in the ocean, like huge volumes. I was really surprised about the scale of it. Um, and you're talking about... It takes sort of 90 days to drill a well. So the first program is drilling eight wells or six wells, um, which take a couple of years. And that's just the first stage. Then they keep drilling for the next 20 years because they need to keep drilling new wells to keep the gas flow up. So that impact is ongoing. It's, it's um, not just a one-off. Mm. And then you've got, you know, massive gas flaring out at sea as well. You've got huge uh, flames going up in the sky 24 hours a day. Um, and they never showed the TV people this. They, they kept it really quiet. Yeah. For sure. So it sounds like it's threatening not only 
uh, their food source, but also, you know, their, their way of life and their culture. And as you said, some of them also have businesses around these ecosystems. Yeah. Um, and it, it does kind of follow a, a very familiar story of, you know, a large fossil fuel company sort of uh, not consulting properly with First Nations people. But this case is profound in the fact that it is the first time a First Nations person has brought a legal challenge to an offshore pro- uh, project because of a lack of consultation. So what outcomes are you hoping for, uh, not only in the case, but also on the influence of the fossil fuel industry at large? Yeah, this is a very unique situation because of the uh, NT Aboriginal Land Rights Act. So the Tui Islanders, they own their land. It's freehold own ownership. Um, and they clearly have native title rights to the sea country. So it's very clear to prove that they actually have legal rights over that area. Um, yeah, so this is the first time we've ever had a big offshore gas project come close to this legal situation where the traditional owners have clear rights. Whereas in the Kimberley, there's a lot of gas projects over there as well. There is, no, there is no Land Rights Act. There's only the Native Title Act. And also the, the Browse Basin and the Kimberley is much, much further offshore. So um, it's not as, not as relevant, I suppose. Um, and most of the operations happen offshore, whereas in this situation you've got a big gas pipeline literally coming with six, within six kilometres of uh, you know, Aboriginal-owned land, um, uh, which is you know, a clear impact to those people. Mm. And I guess, um, so you're, you're going to court, uh, presumably, within the next few months. What's kind of the ideal uh, outcome there? Will they stop the project altogether, or do you think they will just have to go back and do more extensive consultation? I, I don't really know, to be honest, um, but I would I'd hope they would definitely go back and do more consultation. And, you know, if the consultation shows that these people really don't want this, Where's the government going to stop and listen to them? I've been running submissions against these projects for years and they completely ignore the marine science side of it. So perhaps the uh, traditional owner side of it might actually have a bit more power here. Mm. You know, these, these projects have enormous impacts and we just get ignored. Absolutely. And it sounds um, from what you've said that the, the native title laws there are strong. So hopefully that will also have some, some influence. But I guess uh, expanding that issue out, a little bit more to a national scale, we know energy has been a really contentious issue over the last decade, and Albanese has pledged to end the climate wars. So what are your thoughts on how governments can meaningfully listen and act on Indigenous issues as Australia enters the next chapter of our energy transition? Yeah, look, uh, Barossa is a perfect case just to highlight that what you've just said there. You've got the dirtiest gas field offshore in Australia that they want to dig up. Um, you've got this vague promise by Santos to develop carbon capture storage to deal with the huge volumes of emissions off this gas field. You know, the, the, there's, there's um, researchers saying that to de- develop Barossa, you're actually releasing more, more emissions than what you are making LNG. So it's actually a super polluting. Now, Santos has said that they want to pump carbon dioxide out to sea to the old Bayouindan field which is in the middle of the Timor Sea, 500 kilometres from Darwin. Now, they've got no plans for this. There's nothing published. There's no information out there. They said they might be able to make a decision by 2025. But by 2025, they're already pumping gas and they're already releasing huge volumes of CO2, so it's a little bit late, guys. And the other big issue there is carbon colonialism. So we're literally talking about pumping our pollution back into East Timorese waters, which is where the Bayouindan field is and then uh, paying the East Timorese a peppercorn rent to 
use that old gas field, which we actually sucked the gas out and made all the money out of, then to use that old gas field to store the carbon dioxide under the ground there. So is that fair? Is that just? Or are we just um, doing a, another horrible thing to the East Timor East? Um, well, it's certainly worlds away from us down here in, in Nam, Melbourne, but I'm wondering how can our listeners stay up to date uh, with the case and the cause here um, at the Barossa Project? Yeah, it's called stopbarossagas.org. You, you're quite welcome to have a look at that. It's, we're an alliance of groups from all over the world. There's literally hundreds of people working on stopping this gas project now, so there'll be a lot of stuff happening in the next year or so. And hopefully we can slow down this, this huge cumbersome train, which is the Barossa Gas Project. Mm, well, we'll pop that link uh, in our show notes there if our listeners want to head to the 3CR website. But, Jason, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and sharing all of your insights on this issue. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Jacob. Awesome. So that was Jason Fowler um, from the Environment Centre of the Northern Territory speaking there on a case um, to stop Santos initiating a gas project off the north coast of Australia. And you're on 3CR Breakfast. We'll be right back after this.
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. CR Radiothon 2022. 3CR. Keep community strong. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser. June 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3CR.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep community strong. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast, joined by uh, myself, Jacob, Ella and Claudia here in the studio on this cold, cold morning. Um, that song, Ella, what was the name of the song? Uh, Come On Home from the Lajardi Sisters. Amazing. What a, what a bop to bring us into our next segment. And you may have heard as well, we've got our Radiothon happening at the moment. So this is 3CR's annual fundraiser to keep us on the air, uh, we are probably the only or one of the only 100% community-owned independent media outlets um, in NAM and in potentially in Australia. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. A lot of claims um, happening. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of claims over in this corner. But please head online, 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And if you have the means, we'd really appreciate it. Over to Claudia. Thank you, Jacob. Well, this month, Melbourne Museum showcases one of the greatest stories of Aboriginal resistance in Victoria. A Fight for Survival is an exhibition of photographs, artwork, historical records and media reports telling the story of the unique Northland Secondary School and the community who saved it from closure. For listeners who may not be familiar with the background of this story, Northland Secondary College was one of 350 schools shut down by Jeff Kennett in the 1990s and the only one that survived. Two Aboriginal students challenged the closure on grounds that it indirectly discriminated against them because of their race and therefore breached the Victorian Equal Opportunity Act. After a two-and-a-half-year court struggle, the boys won, and the school was ordered to reopen by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Here to tell us about the exhibition and why this school was so special is one of the original educators, Yorta Yorta and Wurundjeri educator-artist, Lynn Thorpe. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning, Claudia. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are things up in Shepparton this morning? Uh, it's pretty um, cold, close to the snow. <laughs> I bet it is. We, c- we yeah. shouldn't really be complaining down here in Melbourne. It uh, must be quite a few degrees colder up there. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us um, about the school? This was no ordinary school. Why was it different? Well, that's a big question. Um, I think there were a lot of um, reasons. I think um, 
Well, for me, I guess one, one of the, the main things that stood out over time was um, Deidre Buck, um, the other educator who I worked with at the time, and before us there were... Um, there were other Aboriginal educators who worked at the school, so there was a history of um, Aboriginal education in that um, school, which was originally a, um, a tech school. And um, it was also a local um, community school, and there was a lot of input, you know, for people who lived in the, the local area. And I think... Um, and the other thing was that because it was a trade school, there was a lot of, like, hands-on sort of subjects like sheet metal, um, wood, and um, the creative arts, especially visual arts. Um, they had a, a key um, arts education program um, that was like pathways um, to university or otherwise, you know, um, after leaving um, year six there, um, year 12. So I think those things, um, Deidre and I were able to build on um, because there was elements of... Um, creativity and the arts, that we could really um, utilise that and work with like-minded um, people who were creating themselves in terms of teachers and parents um, to, I guess, you know, embed Aboriginal perspectives and ways of working into the, the school curriculum there um, through the creative process, through dance, through the arts. And so we use that as a common ground um, you know, I guess the best of both worlds in, in that, um, in those sort of areas. Um, you know, I think it was a pretty special place because when we went there, there was, you know, it was um, a very innovative school through the vision of Bill, of former, um, you know, at the time the um, principal there was Bill Maxwell, and um, I think he had a vision that, you know, that school was there for the students. Um, and, and there was an op opportunity for the, the kids, you know, Aboriginal and all other cultures or kids who went to that school to be able to um, excel in education based on, um, you know, what they had to bring into that environment. Um, so we really think we, we were able to build on that and, um, and um, I guess, embed Aboriginal perspectives as, as adding value in the classroom and um, learning to work um, and understand different ways of how we, as, you know, cultural identity and things like that um, were important, are important aspects. Yeah, I'd like um, to... Um, sorry, cutting you yep. off at the end there. I'd like to hear more about the specific ways you, you work to build on um, the personal strengths and cultural strengths of the students. Um, but before... <clears throat> excuse me, we delve into that. I just wondered, um, the legal case to save the school was based on the argument that the Aboriginal students would be unable to receive an equal opportunity to education if the school was closed and Northlands had the highest Indigenous population of any uh, secondary school in Victoria at the time. I was wondering um, if you could share a bit about what was happening in other Melbourne schools um, in terms of what they were offering Aboriginal students and, 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 and where the, the gaps were there that um, weren't catering for their needs? Um, I think we did have, you know, feeder schools that we worked with closely. Um, um, I mean, it did seem apparent um, 
because when we started there, the numbers of, of, of uh, Aboriginal kids in particular at the school did, did grow over time. So, you know, like in terms of other schools um, and building an understanding and investing in that process, the reason why I, I talk about those things first is because they're essentially the things that we were fighting for, you know, in terms of cultural resistance. You know, having the right to have an education that that um, nurtured and um, you know recognised the value of um, cultural knowledge and building those understandings within the education space. So, um, you know, we did work with other schools, but I, you know, as far as I understand, you know, there was primary schools like Hutton Street Primary, um, Thornbury Primary School. And, um, you know, theatre school that we were working with um, where, you know, at the time, over that time in, in, in the Northland um, and Preston East Tech that later became Northland Secondary College, um, we developed um, a work with, um, um, as a way to, um, for the kids to be able to, um, you know, connect with their identity and have that valued in the education space through career youth will shape fears. Um, so there were girls and, and um, boys in that dance um, um, group. And so that, that gave them an opportunity to, to grow that even more. So, you know, go out to other schools and, and um, primary schools um, to share that um, and promote that idea. Um, does that make sense? It certainly does. So it was a really culturally safe place for the students to um, develop their own strengths and also share with with others in the surrounding area. Yeah, like I think it's an appreciation, appreciation of different ways of communicating um, and, and building in confidence. In, in, in mainstream education spaces, I think it's more difficult or um, I don't think there's a lot of places that actually put, um, you know, invest um, in, in um, you know, because it is a, a long-term process. It's not something that happens overnight. You build the confidence of the kids, you know, in the families and then working with the Aboriginal community um, to actually share responsibility and um, share, share knowledge and practice um, and what education means to Aboriginal people and why it's important um, for us to be able to... Um, expand and extend that knowledge in, in, in the education um, curriculum um, as a contribution, not as an add-on. You know, so as time goes, you, you can see how kids, you know, the growing confidence and just being able to be who they, who they are. And, you know, kids who haven't um, had the opportunity for whatever reasons um, to have a strong sense of identity... Um, you know, did start to grow and, you know, kids of other cultures um, and, you know, and, and, and Australian kids coming together to support each other in environment, you know, there wasn't really, um, that I recall, um, many, a lot of, um, especially, like, you know, as time went on, of racial incidents at the school either. Um, yeah, no, it was a really great place to work as well. So do you remember where you were when you got the news that the school was being closed down? I was actually at... Um, um, Deidre rang me. I was actually... Because 
Um, we had this plan, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Deakin um, Institute of Pre-Education at, um, at um, Deakin um, University in Geelong. Um, mm-hmm. So we had, there was an opportunity to do a, a, an intern um, teacher um, um, program there. And so we both uh, applied and did that. But I think Deidre Older had already had a plan that um, um, I'd do the the teaching program and she'd stay at the school but so we'd still work work together and so I was actually out there on a, on a um, you know at the university and she rang me um, to say what happened um, it was a shock really because I honestly couldn't believe you know because we'd been there for quite a few years then um, I think it was 86 um, when we started there as a team, um, because previously they had um, educators, individual, you know, single educators, and there was, I think, there was a, a strategy that came from the Aboriginal Education Group um, to employ um, and trial two, two career educators in the school. So, um, and just from there, there was, um, you know, as, as in terms of the approach to education. Um, there was a big, um, you know, the kids um, and, and the families um, really wanted to fight and try and keep the um, school open. And that was, you know, Aboriginal families as well as other families and and staff um, at the school. And that's where, I guess, um, you know, Gary Foley played a key role in, um, you know, lead that along with the failure, the principal and and others. Who, who supported and wanted to be a part of, you know, helping move forward with that. And, and of course, the two Aboriginal complainants, Muthama Sinatan and, and um, Gary's son, Bruce Foley. So they took on the Victorian government and they were involved in a two-and-a-half-year legal battle with appeals yep. and all sorts of uh, hurdles. How did the community maintain the momentum through that long period of, of struggle at the same time as the school was closed, so you had a whole community of students who were impacted by the loss of the school. You know, where was where were they? Where did they go when the school was shut? And you know, how were families yeah. and the community feeling during this time alongside um, the legal fight? Oh, it's a long time ago, you know. It was very a very stressful period, um, but in other ways it was empowering. Oddly, like I think because you know that there, you know, people standing together to fight um, for something, especially for us as Aboriginal people, it, it did feel, you know, as as the base of that fight, um, it reinforced that idea that. You know, in terms of our rights to have an education um, that was um, important and um, for us as Aboriginal people, and what, um, we were able to con- contribute to that process, um, but also how that actually benefited um, benefited um, you know the whole school population. So it was a common you know common cause, and um, I think you know. Th- one of the things that happened, you know, for certain um, for students who were um, 
in trying enrolling some kids just um, finished their education and um, just went out to get it um, work and um, do training or whatever and others who tried to enrol in other schools were um, weren't treated very well um, you know I guess by some individual um, teachers at some of those schools um, so you know, were discriminated against in in the, the attitude of, you know, just saying things like, you know, don't come here as special, you know, expecting to be treated special or whatever. Um, you know, and there's some pretty bad stuff happened to, to some um, students. And um, so what happened was um, Deidre, um, Deidre Bucks um, and, you know, with um, Susie's Foley, who's now Susie Foley, and, and, and others um, actually started to run um, um, classes at, at the um, at the school for kids, you know, just as a as a as a safe place um, for kids. And it was, you know, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal kids in those early um, months, um, you know, and run. There were voluntary teachers and. Um, yeah, there was a long process. You know, they eventually got um, locked out of there and then moved to different locations, sometimes, you know, in the parks. Um, Minajapu, which is an Aboriginal church um, associated with um, Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, um, supported by them. Um, there were, at, at one time, classes run, running in those spaces. Um, so I really did rely on um, voluntary um, t- teachers to be able to um, keep that going. And there was a need to keep it going because, you know, I think um, there were, um, especially kids who, who um, you know, but struggled and um, were feeling the, the uh, effect um, and, and not wanting to go to the mainstream schools because they didn't feel culturally safe. Um, yeah, so, you know, there was one... one um, volunteer teacher, Pete Ambleton, um, you know, he was a, a shift worker and um, he lived way over the other side of Melbourne um, and he used to, you know, he was a mainstay in um, one of the teachers, um, volunteer teachers um, and later became a, when the, sc- the school was um, re- um, was opened, reopened and, and went back, um, he actually worked at Northland. Um, so wow. yeah, it's a big story. I mean, there's a lot, lot in there, and I think uh, hopefully that's reflected, you know, in, in the exhibition, um, you know, through the beautiful artworks and um, uh, photos um, that show, you know, a snapshot of of that um, time and place. Well, we're going to have to wrap up, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us. Um, we will share all the details of the exhibition on our website. Um, yep. Is there anything you want to add before we go about the special panel event that is also taking place this Saturday along with the exhibition? I believe um, there's some fairly uh, special speakers coming along. Dr Gary Foley, Moira Rayner, who was the yep. Equal Opportunity Commissioner at the time, mm-hmm. and some yep. community members. Um, that sounds like a fantastic event. Hmm. I mean, I encourage um, people to go along to that because it'll be really, um, 
a worthwhile um, and deadly discussion. And, um, you know, there are people there, you know, former students and um, part of the community. Um, I'll, I'll be there and um, as well as, uh, I think, Mothama Senapone. Um, so it'll be really a, a good opportunity to get some insight into that from just people who are personally part of that story so long ago. Mm, that gra- yeah. grassroots uh, community success. Grassroots. Exactly. Thank you so much for speaking with us this morning. That was former Northland Secondary School educator, Yorta Yorta and Wurundjeri woman, Lynn Thorpe, talking about a fight for survival, the exhibition showcasing the story of the Northland's secondary school and the community who took on the Victorian government to stop it being closed. The exhibition is on at Melbourne Museum and this Saturday at 2pm. There's a panel discussion uh, featuring some of the activists that were involved in that case. Um, It is a ticketed event, so hop on to the Melbourne uh, Museum's Victoria website. Uh, But any First Nations people will be welcomed along uh, free and you can uh, make a booking at fpbookings at museum.vic.gov.au. Over to Jacob. Thanks, Claudia. We're going to jump to a couple of community service announcements and we'll be right back very soon. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. Welcome back, 3CR Breakfast. Uh, we just heard a great interview with Lynn Thorpe about the fight to save Northland Secondary College. Um, and now I'm going to hand over to Ella. Yeah, now we're going to have a look at a different chapter of Australia's activist history. Uh, This interview is going to look at the 60s. Uh, So our next guest is writer Nadia Wheatley. Um, She's written some much-loved children's books, such as My Place and Five Times Dizzy, uh, an award-winning biography, some memoirs. Um, Her latest book is Radicals, Remembering the 60s, which is co-authored with her longtime friend Meredith Bergman. Um, And this book is part memoir, part biography, um, and it looks back at this really interesting time in Australia's history. Um, There's the backdrop of the Vietnam War, Aboriginal land rights, women's liberation, and much more. Um, So I'm excited to hear more. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Nadia. Good morning, Ella. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. I understand you uh, ditched your aqua aerobics class for us this morning, so we're very (laughs) flattered. (laughs) Happy to do that. Now, uh, first up, tell us why you wanted to write this book. Why the 60s um, and why write it now? Okay, well, first, 
I'll say something about the 60s, which Meredith Bergman, my co-conspirator with this book, and I define as running from 65 to 75. So it was more of a spirit or a movement than an actual chronological decade. And it was the time, of course, when protests took off internationally in America and Europe and Britain and also with a particular twist here in Australia. And why Meredith and I wanted to do this book is that we were part of that struggle. That was really our heyday. We were young women at university and we took part in the anti-Vietnam movement, the anti-apartheid movement, women's liberation. We had First Nations friends such as Gary Foley, who now lives in Melbourne, um, and a couple of other First Nations people in this book. So we wanted to record and honour that time and the particular type of left-wing radicalism of that time. So we talked to 18 other radicals from all across Australia, from Brisbane, Melbourne, Townsville, Tasmania, and we asked them about the moment or the experience that had radicalised them. Now, initially, Meredith and I thought it would be Vietnam because that was what radicalised us, but we found a whole range of experiences and what was interesting was that we chose people who came from conservative backgrounds. So we didn't want people who'd grown up in the left. We want people who wanted people who'd grown up in that dreadful 1950s Menzies era in conservative or boring political families and who had something that woke them up and transformed them into lifelong radicals. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like it was this time of change for the country, but also on an individual level for a lot of people. Um, I um, just got through the first chapters of the book last night. I really enjoyed it, which is um, your chapter and Meredith's chapter. Um, And you both write how you didn't um, come from this background of um, uh, political activism or you weren't raised in these radical families. Um, So I imagine, yeah, it was a really uh, defining time for you personally as well. It certainly was. And, of course, the famous slogan from the 60s is the personal is political. And that really is the slogan of this book. So for all of these people, there was something like um, the actor John Derham, who came from a Melbourne Catholic um, DLP voting family. The DLP was the far to the right even of the Liberal Party on foreign policy. But the hanging of Ronald Ryan, the last person hanged in Australia, was the incident that um, absolutely radicalised him when he went up on the morning of the hanging outside the jail there in Coburg in Melbourne and um, with a group of people in a vigil and he thought they, the government, just aren't listening. So it was a whole range of personal experiences, different backgrounds that brought people into the movement. Yeah. And... um uh, you've spoken to a, a real range of different people. Uh, you mentioned Gary Foley. He actually uh, came up in our previous interview this morning, which is looking at a different movement from the 90s to save yeah, the Indigenous Yeah, I know he's been college. involved long-term with that school at Northlands, which is fantastic. And Gary's actually going to be um, giving the launch speech on tomorrow night, Thursday night, at Trades Hall at 6 o'clock, Victorian Trades Hall, when we launch the book. Now, the book... Um, actually came out last year, Radicals Remembering the 60s, but because of COVID, we couldn't have the, the Melbourne launch, so we're celebrating it in Melbourne. And Gary, not originally from Melbourne, of course, he's a Gumbanger man from the north coast of New South Wales, but long-term Melbourne resident, resident 
Dr Gary Foley is going to be doing the honours tomorrow night. But other Melbourne people are Margaret Roadnight, the wonderful um, folk singer, uh, Peter Batchelor, the trade unionist um, and politician, and um, also um, John Derham, who I've already mentioned, and Albert Langer, who now goes by the name of Arthur Dent. So quite a good cast of Melbourne radical characters. Yeah, absolutely. And can you tell us about how you um, chose your guests for the book? How we... How you um, decided who you'd feature in this book. I understand you um, wrote it by interviewing all these people. A bit like inviting people to a party. You want to invite people who've got enough in common um, to to have interesting conversations and, dare I say, arguments, but (laughs) where the arguments won't be so bad that you end up with a punch-up in the car park afterwards. So it was um, a balance of... Men and women, we wanted a balance across Australia and a balance of political movements. Um, there was a great range from the sort of non-aligned um, new left activists, such as Meredith and myself, through to Brian Labor in Brisbane, who's a capital A anarchist, um, to Arthur Dent, Albert Langer, who was head of the Maoist at Monash University, um, a Trotskyist from Sydney, Helen Voisey, who was in a t- uh, high school students against the war in Vietnam. So we wanted a range of political backgrounds, a range of occupations, and we included the ca- counterculture. We included the arts as well as the political movement. So we have Vivian Binns, who lives now in Canberra, and she was painting and displaying um, radical feminist art, notably um, a confronting huge psychedelic image of a vagina, as early as 1967, so well before the women's movement officially kicked off in Australia and even in the United States. Yeah, I think you've certainly uh, succeeded in um, presenting a good range of guests um, in a Blurberry Red. You've got everyone from... Uh historian, a union organiser to a professional tennis player. I haven't got to that chapter yet, but I'm uh, looking forward to it. Well, that's the same one who's Brian Labor, the um, the capital A anarchist. So people Ah. have um, very multifaceted um, lives. And were you meeting people personally and doing the interview in person? Were these people you knew already? Yeah, good question. So how we did the book was um, we chose the people and we interviewed people together, except in a couple of cases where um, geography and the fact that we had to pay for our airfares uh, meant that only one of us would do it. So I alone interviewed Brian in Brisbane. Uh, but mostly we interviewed the people together, but we wrote the chapters separately, except for the introduction and the conclusion. And so the chapters um, take the form of a conversation. I stress it's not sort of oral history on the page. It's not just like putting down the words of an interview. Um, It's more like an article you might read in The Good Weekend or in a Saturday paper where you meet the person through the conversation and the ambience of where they're living. And we're also very interested in their family background because, as I said, this is about radical awakening. So it's about the aha moment when people discovered radicalism and through that, they discovered their own true self, their own identity. And so we needed to go back into people's family stories in order to see how they had jumped out of that background to become radicals. Yeah, it was really interesting even, as I said, I've just read the first two chapters so far, yours and um, Meredith's, um, Mm -hmm. but even then it was still really interesting to... um, 
see the range in experiences with people's families as well, I suppose. So when we hear about the 60s, we always hear about um, people upsetting their parents and um, uh, having really difficult relationships after their activism. But there was a real difference even between uh, yourself and Meredith's experience. Yeah. I understand you had a, a di- more difficult experience, whereas Meredith's parents, uh, despite being from uh, pretty conservative backgrounds were actually really understanding and accepting of her um, choices to get involved in activism. Indeed. Well, this was actually um, a phenomenon. Yes, we do hear about the generation gap. And in my own life, um, I had a stormy argument with cousins and aunts and uncles um, about my politics. Um, But Meredith's family, particularly her mum, um, actually moved to the left parallel with her and particularly uh, Meredith's mother whom I love dearly um, became passionately um, supportive of the anti-apartheid movement because people could see um, racism they could see the conscription was wrong and so there was a transformative movement going on across the generations and of course that transformation came to fulfillment in 1972 with the It's Time election. We baby boomers, who sometimes get a bit of stick for having had everything um, easy and lucky, we grew up for our entire childhood and adolescence under the Menzies and then later um, other Prime Ministers' Liberal Country Party Coalition. So for young people today who've had perhaps as many as seven, eight, nine Prime Ministers, Imagine what it would be like if you'd had only one Prime Minister and that was an old whitehead patriarchal bloke um, and the repression of the 1950s that we grew up in, the boredom and social conservatism of that time was absolutely dreadful. So we were ready to get out on the streets and rebel. But the older generation too was becoming disturbed, um, if not about Vietnam, about conscription. Because remember, for every boy who faced the possibility of being forced into the army. For the first time in Australian history, we had conscription um, to send soldiers overseas. But for every boy who faced that, there was a mum and a dad, and they were worried. They didn't want their boys going off to Vietnam. So that actually caused a lot of unpopularity, initially for the war and then for the government that was delivering them that war. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, in um, terms of how we reflect on the time now, I think, um, as you said, we often um, give baby boomers a hard time and certainly envy your um, house prices. But I think we're all, yeah, really um, grateful for the work you did at the time. And I don't think anyone wishes to turn back the clock to um, some of the sentiment that was going around at the time. Um, how do you no, feel looking at current political movements now? We are um, running a little short on time, but just quickly... Um, in terms of the way activism has changed. Meredith and I, despite COVID and whatever, um, went in the Black Lives Matter protest here in Sydney. We went, of course, in in the big um, women's protest that happened a year or so ago. And we're both very hopeful, as indeed everyone in the book is very hopeful, about the new generation of radicals. We don't see things as finishing with us. We wanted this conversation to go out, this book to go out, so that younger radicals um, can meet their older comrades, have a bit of a chat with us via the book and not learn from us. We're not didn't. didactic, but just see mm-hmm. how, what fun it is 
to change the world. I mean, this is a, this is a book of hope, optimism and fun. Yeah, and that's definitely the um, perception I got when reading it last night. It's um, a lot of really heavy and interesting subject matter, but it's, um, yeah, sprinkled with all these really fun and interesting little facts about the time. Um, Now, we are going to have to head off. Um, Nadia, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Just quickly, can you give us the plug again for the event tomorrow night and your book? Yeah, yeah. So the book is Radicals Remembering the 60s by Meredith Bergman and Nadia Wheatley. If you don't find it in your local bookshop, tell them to order it in. Um, As I say, it came out last year with a publisher called New South, so their stocks might have run out, but um, the bookshop can order it in. And tomorrow night, Dr Gary Foley is going to be launching it for us um, at um, the Victorian Trades Hall at 6 o'clock. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, Nadia. Thanks, Ella. Bye. And that was Nadia Wheatley telling us about her new book, which is co-authored with Meredith Bergman. Uh, The book is called Radicals, Remembering the 60s. It launches in Melbourne tomorrow night at Trades Hall at 6pm. Fantastic. What what an interesting book. I need to get my hands on this. I think so. I think that's uh, one for us all to read at 3CR. We're here to to bring radical stories to our listeners, and there's a, a book supporting the, uh, all the different causes these people have stood up for over the years in the 60s. and mm. Yeah, absolutely. A very aptly titled book for an interview on 3CR, I think. Mm. <laughs> absolutely. Especially coming into our radiothon where we're highlighting to our listeners the, the types of stories that we bring and why we think it's important to share stories of protest and awareness of of issues so that people are aware and can participate in democracy as we've now seen in our election where people really stood up for what they wanted and Mm. voted you know based on in a lot of cases community issues so yeah absolutely and it is um yeah really important to have those independent spaces like 3cr where um People are free to, yeah, say what they stand for and what they believe in um, without all these strings attached. And make uh, informed or have informed conversations, I think, is probably the main thing for me, um, which I think is a really important driver of cultural change. And as we know, cultural change leads to political change. So, yeah, it's all about informing the people of what's going on. And I think today we had some really uh, great chats about vaccine inequity, uh, we talked about the Barossa Gas Project. Yeah, and then we talked about activism, both in the case and of... Gary the Foley. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Dr. Gary Foley's got a busy week with his uh, uh, book hey? launch tomorrow night and then speaking at Melbourne Museum. And I should add, actually, that the Melbourne Museum uh, panel event is actually... Um, you can go in person, but you can also attend that virtually for anyone that can't get there in person. You can see that online um, with a reduced ticket price um yeah so great show everyone yeah fantastic Thank thanks you for joining us to all our guests yes and thanks to all our guests up next is stick together